Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on mummies, tiki, and horror. And I'm Nicholas Dyack. Uh, I'm also a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies. I am the editor of the new Peplum from McFarland, and Michelle and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, uh, we will be revisiting James Chambers, and we'll be looking at his collection On the Night Border, published by Raw Dog Screaming Press last year. The stories we'll be looking at are A Song Left Behind on Aztakia Hills, and Odd Cohogs. Uh, we'll finish the episode by revealing who we'll be interviewing on our next episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time, as well as what story we'll be talking about on the next episode of the HP Lovecast podcast. We'll also be sharing some big news of what's coming to the HP Lovecast podcast. Before we jump into the first story of James Chambers, uh, we'd like to give you a brief overview of who James Chambers is. He is an award-winning author of, of tales of horror, crime, fantasy, and science fiction. He wrote the Bram Stoker award-winning graphic novel, Kojak the Night Stalker, The Forgotten Lore of Edgar Allan Poe, as well as The Engines of Sacrifice, a collection of four Lovecraftian-inspired novellas published by Dark Regions Press, which Publishers Weekly described as, quote, chillingly evocative. On the Night Border, published by Raw Dog Screaming Press, has been described as a thoroughly satisfying collection by Booklist. James' short stories have been published in numerous anthologies and magazines. His tale, A Wandering Blackness, one of two published in Lynn Carter's Dr. Anton Zarnak, Occult Detective, received an honorable mention in the year's Best Fantasy and Horror, 16th Annual Collection. He has also written numerous comic books, including Leonard Nimoy's Primordials, the critically acclaimed The Revenant in Shadow House, The Midnight Hour with Jason Whitley, and of course, the Kojak, the Night Starker graphic novel. He is a member of the Horror Writers Association and serves as the New York Chapter Coordinator. James is the recipient of two HWA Service Awards, the 2012 Richard Lehman Award and the 2016 Silver Hammer Award. Story number one, A Song Left Behind in the Aztecia Hills. Salvatore Sinelli is a painter and an artist living in Nixport, Long Island. The year is 1969 and Sinelli is in an emotional rough spot. His lover, Gregory, has left him, and he dearly misses his friend, beat poet Jack Kurak, who had left town five years earlier, but has recently passed away. Unable to complete a commissioned painting and seeking some alcohol to dull his broken heart, uh, Sinelli heads to Raker's, a local bar ran by his friend Spence. Waiting for Sinella is a mathematician, Finton Grive, who seeks to hire Sinelli as a guide to spot to a spot atop of the nearby Aztecia Hills, where, years prior, Sinelli, Kirak, and a psych folk group called the Sultans ventured in order to play their music, for it would be the right place, at the right time, when the stars are right. 
Fenton theorizes that the music of the Sultans has parallels to the witchcraft and advanced mathematics done by Kezia Mason centuries prior, not centuries, <laughs> um, prior up in Arkham. After a few rounds of gin and tonics and a worthwhile monetary payment, Sinelli agrees to lead Fenton up to the spot. Upon reaching the spot, music from the Sultans feel fills his ears as he discovers the band has never left the area but became part of it forever piping their discordant tunes through the wailing the universe spins and a being appears before Sinelli. Fenton is unable to see or, see or hear anything that is going on Sinelli has a glimpse into the true horrible insignificant reality of the universe and in a snap he wakes up and a month has transpired Having seen the true nature of the universe, he begins to fear what will happen to him next. Michelle, thoughts on A Song Left Behind in Aztecia Hills? Um, yeah, th so this is the first story that opens up on the night border, and I think it's one of the strongest stories to open up with. It really has a wonderful mix of loss, memory, and nostalgia, it taps into the beat generation as well as um, the concept of music and art, which are always two subjects that really fascinate me and uh, grab my attention. Um, I think there's also, as we've seen with Ian Welke, um, Kevin Wetmore, and others' writings, how they are able to blend the familiar, the nostalgia, things that are everyday, into um, this horror and kind of terrorizing experience. I really like James' writing. I think he writes very tightly uh, in a very concise manner, but he also uh, brings in enough of the Lovecraft elements while, while also making them his own um, into a very fast-paced, very interesting, um, want-to-know-more type of uh, storytelling. Um, those are my quick uh, initial thoughts. Um, Nick, what about you for your initial thoughts? Uh, well, first, I actually take umbrage to uh, to the, uh, so I think it was the praise that Publishers Weekly gave to this, calling it a satisfying book. That's something you say like after you go to Burger King and you just eat the eat. <laughs> it was just a satisfying meal. Not great, not nothing. Um, I say it just because On the Night Border is more than satisfying. It's actually a superb collection of stories. And uh, A Song Left Behind on the Azteca Hills is probably the most standout of all the stories uh, in the anthology. For me, I really like this one because it hits all these points of interest that coalesce with what I'm really into. Uh, psych folk, there's cocktails, beat generation type stuff. Uh, which is all stuff that has parallels to the things I'm into and study and write about. It's also a camouflage love story, or at least a love lost story. Uh, in both this and as we'll see in Odd Cohags, <laughs> I will mispronounce that at some point, you know, there's diversity on the mind uh, in both of these stories in a time of unacceptance. Uh, it's just a fantastic story. It's a complex and multifaceted story. Well, um, excellent. I think we're, we're both on the same page. I, I agree with you. I think the, the comment about satisfying uh, undervalues and understates the, the value of this uh, collection of stories, uh, both into the Lovecraft universe, but also more generally uh, the horror. And I'm sure um, we'll get into that a bit 
bit further, but um, Nick, what's a big theme for you that, that really struck with you? There is actually a lot in this story that struck with me. There, I don't know what's probably the easiest one to start off with, so I think it's probably the best. Let's start with the beat references, just because Kerouac is a big driving force behind this story, even though he's a deceased character. This isn't the first time uh, Lovecraft has been mixed with the, the beat stuff. I know Nick Mamatos, has, I think his first big novel was Move Underground, which actually was a most more overt mixing of Kerouac and Lovecraft. And I haven't read that book, so that might be homework for us a little bit later. There is this reference on page 24 of uh, On the Night Border uh, for this short story, and it says, Jack and I did not walk back down the hill that night in 64. We stepped through the doors of the sultans opened into the shadow of a throne made of night and stars. The cosmos molded like a mother's hand cupping the, the skull of her mad son filled the cyclones and conceptions and notions shredded like words on cut up paper scattered in a maelstorm. Visually, that's a great sentence. But it's also a reference to William S. Burroughs who, along with Brian Geisen, they developed this literary technique called the cut-up technique, where they would take a text of something, cut it up into separate words and sentences, whatever, and rearrange it into uh, different meanings. And of note, uh, Chambers actually references Burroughs and Naked Lunch and Engines of Sacrifice in Investigation 37. So I kind of bring this all up because there's this... I don't consider this story a beat story, but it, or maybe, you know, I, when I read it, I don't immediately think of Burroughs or Kerouac or anyone else, but their presence is really strong in this as something motivational. And and as we've talked about in other Lovecraft stuff, it adds a blue-collar element because, you know, Kerouac was kind of a blue-collar uh, person. Um, I think what I'd like to add, and, and I like your comment with regards to an observation, the beat generation and, and how they uh, approach their writing, the, the cut-up, um, that actually reminds me of the kind of 1910s, 1920s, which would have been influential to Lovecraft himself, and that is Cubism, Futurism, the basically a visual breaking apart and rebuilding into other pieces and and basically deconstructing and reconstructing into something new you know you're you're 100 percent correct i believe the dotists had a yes. huge influence on burrows and he borrowed a good chunk of what they did to make the cut-up technique so yeah you're 100 percent correct on that uh one of the things that i thought added some real nice flavor was just making the, the pop culture references from the 1960s, such as the music, CCR, uh, the birds, Rolling Stones, uh, the psychedelic 60s. He even at one point talks uh, or makes an observation about the, the clothing of the band, the Sultans, um, that they wore denim and paisley, and I was just, I could, could totally picture that. James really does a nice job with peppering his writing with these wonderful descriptive words that, that readers can just pick up and hang on to, and the, the word choices that he makes allow that visual component to really come through it punctuates it so that you really are able to feel like you're there. You can you can see this small town. You can you can pick into the story and the the environment, the clothes. 
Um, and I just, those are just a couple of the things that I picked up related to the art. I don't know if this is quite pop culture related, and I might be kind of grasping at straws here on this one, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. One of the things about uh, Chambers' writing, at least in his Nixport stuff, is I find myself, you know, going to Google Maps, looking at Long Island, trying to find out where Nixport is. Well, I mean, it's a fictitious town, but... Um, and one of the things I wanted to know is, was there really an Aztecia Hills? And there's not. But there's an Aztecia Woods. And pop culture, well, I'm going to call it pop culture even because it's created a slew of movies. There was a, there was a murder there back in the 80s. In 1984, uh, a teenager uh, named uh, Ricky Casso, uh, he murdered another friend, uh, Gary Lowlers. Uh, they were in the forest, they were high on drugs, they were claiming uh, satanic and occult happenings. And so, and this is during the, the satanic panic of the, you know, the 80s. And, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really grisly and everything, but there's kind of some parallels between this true crime story and what's going on with uh, uh, Chambers' uh, song Left Behind on Aztecia Hills. You know, a group of people going to a secluded spot, doing some, you know, occult-type stuff. One group is jamming and opening up, you know, cosmic gates. The other one's doing, you know, murder, so they kind of diverge a little bit. But I can't help but feel that there's some parallels here. And I know... In the back of On the Night Border, you know, Chambers has some commentary about his stories. This little murder wasn't referenced in his commentary, but I, I can't help but think that maybe it played a little influence in this story, or maybe this kind of in the back of his mind. Where it happened in the Aztecia Woods is in a town called Northport, and that's actually where Kerouac had lived for a, a while. So Northport's probably the closest facsimile we have to Nixport. Pop culture related, not quite, but kind of there. And I think it just kind of adds an, an interesting, I'm going to say true, ki- true crime <laughs> dynamic to Chambers' story. Yeah, and I think it bears uh, mentioning here, and that is the fact that James Chamber lives on Long Island, I think, I don't know if he is a native uh, from the island or not. But, but he is a native New Yorker. But he is a native New Yorker. And so he has a lot of that local knowledge, and he's able to, to pull in a lot of that flavor. He's done a great job creating this, this little coastal town that does mirror, to some extent, uh, Lovecraft's um, Arkham and uh, Shadows over M. Smith. I think he's and I think done an interesting pull of that local culture that makes it seem even more familiar to us. I definitely want to circle around on that when we get to the next story, because even more so now that we will have two stories together, we'll see how Chambers uh, develops his uh, fictional creation of uh, Nixport, because it is a, a fascinating, fictitious town for sure. Another thing to break bring up again we were talking earlier about the the sultans and their <laughs> outlandish 60s outfit um i think the sultans are probably one of the most intriguing aspects of the story uh, i have a soft spot for some psych folk in fact uh you and i we actually went to a, a psych folk concert if you remember seeing a in gowan ring way back in washington we put that concert on um yes i do remember that yeah he would be considered psych folk mm-hmm. uh 
not dressed in so much denim, though. Uh, <laughs> I see the invisible hand of, like, Lee Hazelwood here, you know, ready to snatch up the Sultans and release some records by him. Um, there's a book out there called Seasons They Change, A Story of Acid and Psychedelic Folk by Jeanette Leach. And I, I have it in storage right now. I just want to dig that book out and try to contextualize this fictitious band with, um, with that book. But the scene of the Sultans playing, I, I feel like there's some nods here to some other Lovecraft stories. Uh, particularly the music of Eric Zahn and also multiple other uh, stories where they make references to Azathoth, and, you know, in order to keep Azathoth, you know, sleeping and happy. You know, there's the, the procession of uh, infinite piping that keeps him, you know, nice and placated. And also the, uh, the climax of the Sultan's playing is very evocative of Dreams of the Witch House, which uh, from the podcast that we had the prior week on the Scholars of Edge of Time, uh, James has, you know, said that he draws heavily from the Dreams of the Witch House. And I kind of want to compare two passages here uh, from Dreams of the Witch House. Lovecraft writes, uh, The passage through the vague abysses would be frightful, for the Walpurgis rhythm would be vibrating, and at least he would have to hear that hitherto veiled cosmic pulsing, which he so mortally dreaded. Even now he could detect a low, monstrous shaking whose tempo he suspected all too well. And kind of compare that to Chambers uh, describing the Sultan's playing. The music sounded like Jack said, all the mouths in the world blowing across an infinite number of empty bottles. In the vibration, in the whisper of discordant notes, in the weight of their sound swaddling my flesh and throbbing against my skull, I know those mouths came from a place much vaster than the world. And I think... One, I think the passages are kind of similar, describing kind of a similar occurrence. Uh, I think Chambers is a bit more poetic, while Lovecraft's a bit more uh, esoteric. But I think having a psych folk band here breathes a nice fresh of air into kind of Lovecraft writings. One, as you are saying earlier, it's a very pop culture reference, you know, t uh, the 60s. But a lot of Cthulhu stories now, they're very heavy metal related. And that's fine and all, but you kind of hear the same, you know, death metal and black metal talking about Lovecraft and Cthulhu. So having a psych folk band do it is a, a nice change of pace. And plus, it might be another pop culture reference here, because there was a psych rock band in the 60s called H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. I have no idea what they sound like, though, but I've heard that people who seek them out are kind of disappointing. Probably because they were looking for metal. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I like about the music is that, again, the imagery of the way that the musicians actually come, seem to come out of the trees, I think was uh, quite visually stunning and rather terrifying, um, the way that they came out and they were still in their paisley and, and uh, denim. One of the things that I thought about every time that I... Uh, heard the Sultans was I think the Sultans of Swing or Suede. I, I think the song Swing. Yeah, Sultans of Swing. It's actually a Dire Straits song, and so it's kind <laughs> of a, a laid back, almost, almost an homage to the '60s or kind of you know coming into that groovy '70s you know kind of laid back sound. And every time I I read the Sultans, I always went to that song. 
And in a weird kind of way, it kind of fit within that familiar um, and then bringing in what was terrifying. And if you haven't listened to the interview that we did with James... The, the, the link skull, will be in the, the show notes. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. But he does talk about his want of writing about the familiar and then bringing in the horror aspect. Um, that's He doesn't want to waste people's time. And I think that he's he delivered a story where it doesn't feel wasted. It's it's very interesting um, way of blending the music. Um, the art to a lesser degree, and I'm, I'm sure we'll be discussing the art here in, in a moment, but yeah, the music is, using the 60s music was a novel idea, and it really works here. Well, I guess on the subject of artists, because we talked about, um, at least in the, the plot, that uh, Sinelli is an artist, uh, and as we've talked in prior podcasts, you know, artists play a very important part in Lovecraft and Lovecraftian writings. You know, they're the kind of the, the gateway to the cosmic horror out there. They try to articulate what can't be articulated. Um, you know, uh, I don't think Sinelli is quite like a Pikmin, although it sounds like his artwork is kind of going toward a Pikmin style, at least, you know, in the beginning, when he's more emotional, he can't quite crank out his commission work, and it's a little bit of darkness is picking into it. I would, I'd venture to guess to say, at the end of the story, though, Snelly is definitely a changed person. So I'm curious of where he'll take his art next. You know, will he become, you know, kind of like a Pikmin? Will he become kind of like Wilcox from Call of Cthulhu, where... Um, what he has experienced will seep into his work into greater detail. Or will he be able to stave off that uh, terror that he's witnessed and kind of go about business as usual? It sounds like uh, when he was bringing up Kerak at the end, you know, Kerak's final years, at least to the perspective of this character, was greatly changed by this experience. So it kind of leads me to think that uh, Sinelli is greatly changed in his craftsmanship as well. Yeah, uh, definitely. I was just, as you were talking, I was re-looking at uh, the opening uh, paragraphs of this story and uh, how Salvatore uh, talks about his painting, um, the feelings of isolation and rejection that he's feeling. Um, he in says, unwanted textures crept into, onto my canvas, lending unnatural life to sand, waves, sky, clouds, trees, and rocks, as if weaves of ropey fibers withered beneath the surface of everything. And he's painting that when he's heartbroken and sad, so I can only yeah. imagine what that's going to turn into post this experience. Yeah, so in the last paragraph, uh, to quote from the story, um, he says, My December deadline for Sal Norris, that's his um, agent, had come and gone, but when life returned fully to my body, I finished painting the Martinson Cliffs, with the unwanted shadows and uneasy textures, and Saul grimaced when I showed him, and Spence, the bartender, told me I needed more rest. Um, and so he's definitely on his way to, to the Pikmin uh, universe, um, and one wonders if we will hear more from this, this particular character in further stories. And actually... Nick, you've read all of the stories in the book. Does Salvatore show up again in the book at all? or 
I don't recall. Uh, he might be in Engines of Sacrifice. It's been two years since we've last read that one. For notes out there, if you guys want to go on archive.org, you'll find episode 25 where we talk about the Engines of Sacrifice. I do think it's kind of funny, though, that you bring up the line where Spence is telling um, <laughs> Sinelli he needs to go for a rest. And as we'll see in the next story, that's exactly what happens to uh, Spence. <laughs> Yes, so, um, but before we kind of jump over to that, I did want to bring up a, a couple of themes that uh, resonated for me as I was reading the story. Uh, the first one, and you've actually hinted at this uh, early in your dialogue with regards to this story, and that is the sense of loss that Salvatore uh, experiences, or, you know, what he, what really sets the stage here. And that is, he is—he's um, just uh, broken up from his his partner Gregory, um, so he's feeling the sense of loss of that uh, love of his being gone. But then he also has a, a deeper, more nostalgic loss uh, because Jack has also uh, passed away, and so he is bringing into the story and his narrative the fact of this deep loss you know it's a love and it's also i'm going to say a, a a brotherly brotherly or deep friendship loss and um i think that this is something that we're going to see in other stories as well and particularly in the next story that we discuss but that sense of loss you it's so funny because yeah the story opens up with the sense of loss greatly underscored. He's he's had a one-two punch. His mm-hmm. his long-term boyfriend has left him, and he just got the obituary of Jack Kerouac. But it's interesting that the main plot of the story revolves around him and Fenton going and trying to recreate a lost band because after the Sultans played, they disappeared. They mm-hmm. are lost, but they become refound, and in fact, only refound by uh, Sinelli in this uh, story. So it's kind of weird how, in a weird sort of way, his void has been ref. Uh, it's not been substituted or anything, but you know, he's had two big losses, but he's refound something that's cosmically bigger than himself yes and i would add to that uh at the in the in the opening uh paragraphs of the story uh salvatore also mentions that he has a packet that jack left for him um after that event in 1964 when they had gone up into the hills and it's something that uh salvatore has not been able to read so he does share that at the end of the story that passage and being able to finally read it and to come to terms well i don't know if come to terms is quite the right words here but he does face up to the experiences of 1964 that had basically become very buried and and into his subconscious to the point that he was no longer it was like he had a memory loss I guess in a way it does provide closure, at least for one of his losses, although it's the horrible form of closure where your closure is reading the rantings of someone trying to <laughs> describe the uh, the evilness of the universe <laughs> in writing. Mm-hmm. As I typically am always fascinated by is looking at the Lovecraft tropes and 
um, narrative structures and how do they compare with other writers. And so in this story, Chambers does uh, set it on that uh, coastal town of Nixport, um, his fictional uh, location for many of his Lovecraft stories. He also, through this, this deep sense of loss, I think the subtext of how credible is the narrator. Salvatore, we don't know. We're going to assume that he is a rational individual um, who kind of loses it at the end through what he's seen. But it does bear wondering uh, how credible he, he is throughout the entire, entire story. And that, of course, is one of the tropes that uh, Lovecraft uses in a number of his stories. To kind of underscore what you're saying, Chambers actually fills a hole that Lovecraft never does, and that is that sense of loss. Like, like take example, uh, the beginning of Call of Cthulhu, where the narrator, uh, Thurston, you know, he, he's plunged into, oh, my great uncle's died, and, you know, I've got to <laughs> go through his papers. It just jumps straight into it. There's no, there's no mourning. There's no, oh, he was a great man or anything. I, that's the example that immediately comes to me, but usually when characters die in, you know, Lovecraft stories, it's just sterile. <laughs> it really is, and I... Again, I think that, like you've said, this is a place where James fills that void in the Lovecraft writing. He really quickly is able to bring together that loss, but also the sense of relationships that exist, both in the past and, you know, very real with regards to the, the recent departure of Gregory. And those relationships, as we'll see when we talk about the other story here in a minute... I would say strengthened because of, you know, James's fictional Nixport that characters pop up in other stories or get uh, additional character development or anything. And it adds to an, it adds a, a dimension of interconnectivity, which helps strengthen these bonds and relationships with these characters. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, a couple of other things that, um, other narrative techniques, uh, that shine in this particular story is, uh, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, James's writing, the descriptive language, um, how he drops in a lot of different words for music, so that way you're brought into the story even more. You get a, a, a deeper sense of the musical component. Uh, one thing that we didn't talk about, um, and I'd like to make mention of it, and that is the use of the the various senses. James does a really great job here pulling together not just what we're hearing, but what we see, obviously. Um, But he also brings in uh, that sense of taste. Cocktail drinking. Yes, there's actually a a fair amount of references to what's being um, consumed in the bar, um, there's at one point, um, I think a saboteur who talks about the coppery taste of blood that he has in his mouth. And getting that sense of taste is not something that typically gets um, explored in stories. So that was a very nice touch. Um, we also have um, kind of laundry list a little bit more, and that is the same-sex relationship between Savator and Gregory. That is definitely not something that we would have in Lovecraft typically. However, uh, we don't have any women in this story, and you know that that is unfortunate. 
but at the same time I'm not quite sure where we would have had a, a woman in the story that wasn't um, you know a, a placeholder so um, I mean it's a quick event story that occurs over the course of a night uh, just looking over my list I think that pulls together everything that I had on my themes uh, so we're going to go ahead and consider this a done deal and we're going to move on to the second story Welcome back as we move into short story number two, Odd Cohogs. Set in Chambers' fiction coastal town of Nixport, Bayman Big Gene was having a very bad day when he sought out his friend Spence, owner of the local bar, Rakers. They were like brothers, a close relationship that had been solidified by serving together during the Korean War. Gene had been raking Cohogs out on the tip of the Martinson estate for the South End folk to earn some good money. By accident, Jean's wife, Bethy, ate one of the star-shaped Cohogs. Jean needs Spence to go with him so he can get an antidote for Bethy from the odd, fishy-looking Jonah Marish. After some persuading that includes threatening violence, the sickly Jonah hands over a heavy burlap bag to Jean with instructions to go out to the spot that very night where he had harvested the cohogs. Jean and Spence pick up Bethy, who is in an otherworldly trance, whispering a rhythmic chant. The trio head out to Jean's boat, and then once they arrive at the harvesting spot, Jean pulls from the burlap bag a bronze statue and a spell to recite. As Jean chants to the statue featuring four fish-like semi-human beings facing the cardinal directions, Bethy's chanting fell into sync with her husband's. Their shared chanting wakes something in the depths of the water. Jean shucks and eats one of the star-shaped cohogs so he can fight for Bethy's soul. Spence could not distinguish details of the darkness as first Bethy is taken overboard and then Jean jumps off into the water after his wife. Spence survived and let people assume the couple died after having fallen overboard drunk. So Nick, what are your overall thoughts of the story? Like or dislike? So, I do like it. I think compared to Aztecia Hills, it's the lesser of the two. The story is a bit more, I'm going to say by the book. It's a bit more playing it safe, a bit more... Uh, by the numbers, if if I may, it feels like kind of like a normal, uh, you know, kind of Lovecraft post Lovecraftian story. While Aztecia Hills feels a bit more multi layered and multi, um, you know, kind of complex, a bit more going for it. I, I feel like I'm ragging on this story. I don't mean to. It's just between the two, it's the lesser of the two. With that said, I think while Aztecia accomplishes something a bit more literary, I think this story accomplishes something a bit more world-building for Chambers. I consider it kind of uh, a glue story that helps really solidify his Nixport setting. Uh, As I said in the 
previous segment, I, I love this fictional town, and I feel like every time I read one of Chambers' stories that takes place into it, I feel like I'm unearthing something new, be it something geographical, or something like I'm peering into someone's kind of, you know, secrets, if I may. I feel like it's a giant puzzle that I'm kind of putting together that connects things on a larger scale. And at the same time, it's not a solo puzzle. It's a puzzle that I can connect to Lovecraft's fictional Arkham universe as well. Um, I love this intertextual play in this setting, and I think that's probably the strongest part of this story. Yeah, I would agree. Um, to your point, uh, this story was actually written before A Song Left Behind. The story does feel like it's uh, a bit more by, as you would say, more by the book, um, but I don't think, I still think that it has a lot going for it. Um, and I would love to explore first um, the theme of loss and that bond of friendship. Um, those were themes that we, that we read in the first book, or excuse me, in the first story. And uh, James really comes back to those themes again in this story. I really get the sense that, that we wouldn't have this story if he hadn't been able to create a very... Um, engaging, believable hook right at the beginning of the story, and that is Big Gene and Spence and their their relationship, their wartime experience, having um, been in war together, serving in, um, I forgot the name of the battle, it was uh, Koshin Reservoir in Korea, and it, apparently it was a, it was a, a horrendous 17-day battle. There was a lot of losses. So that right there, James has picked into a battle to be able to give that subtext between Gene and Spence having a very tight relationship and that if somebody was in trouble, the other would be there to to have their back. And that's exactly the hook for this story. You know, I, I have a note about it. I call it the buddy cop aspect. And in fact, both stories kind of have this, where there's a main character leading another character into kind of, uh, into, I'm going to say, a cosmic outcome. You know, something bad's kind of going to happen. But there's a big difference between the, the buddy cop dynamic in Aztecia Hills and this one. This one is because Spence and Gene have that bond that's been there for a long time. They can read each other. They, they're there for each other. It's not a good cop or bad cop. It's you know, more, they're on the same level. Compare that to the relationship, which is just, t it's tenuous at best. It's just based on, I have something you need between Sinelli and Fitton in the first one. So it's amazing how they're both configuration-wise very similar in structure and uh, what they're trying to do. One character leading another character to something that's going to be kind of crazy happening, be it, you know, uh, a clearing on top of the hill where, you know, a uh, a psych band will play from beyond versus, you know, a spot and the, um, uh, the water where they're going to harvest these odd K-hogs, cow-cohogs. You got it. Cohogs. <laughs> but, but it shows, uh, the difference, you know, how the characters, uh, relate to each other. So I agree. Yeah. The, the relationship aspect of this is, is very strong. In fact, it kind of goes to the themes that you were talking about in the first one with the theme of loss of, you know, uh, Sinelli doesn't have any more relationships. Well, he has Spence. 
which is, you know, the main character. So I guess Spence is really good to be a good buddy in all these stories. <laughs> well, and, and he's the bartender owner of, of Rakers. And so, I mean, oftentimes, don't we, we end up talking to our bartender? So it's kind of using, you know, familiar... Well, well used trope, but in a in a bit of a different way. Spence seems like a really interesting uh, character and one you'd you'd kind of want to meet. Actually, he's loyal, um, as we uh, understand in the first story, because he kind of keeps an eye out for Savator. Um, and, and he's an open guy too, because yeah. he has a homosexual friend. He's got a black friend. He and you know he keeps a lot of order around too. And you know shit does not fly by him. He is he is equal for everyone. Yeah, and he's not only is the town a central theme, but I think Spence is too. Um, Nick, I'm going to refer back to you. You've re- you've read all the stories. I'm still reading through them. Uh, on the night uh, border uh, is. It, it would be good to uh, state the fact that some of the stories take place in uh, Nixport, but some do not. Um, that's why this we wouldn't say that this is a Lovecraftian uh, collection, um, because there's uh, straight horror as well as some Lovecraft elements. Uh, Nick, are there other stories set in uh, Nixport, and does Spence uh, show up in some other stories? I don't remember. I want, you know what? My, my default answer is he's probably somewhere in Engines of Sacrifice. Okay. I just don't recall it off the top of my head, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, one of the other uh, bonds or relationships that is explored in this, and, and I'm going to, it's going to be corny, but I'm going to say the power of love. And that is Jean and Bethy's relationship. Unfortunately, Bethy has already eaten the quahog, and she's in this otherworldly uh, trance. But we get a real sense from the friendship between Jean and Spence that the love between Jean and Bethy is very strong. There, it's one of the rare instances that there is a love that's very, very strong. And Gene, as a loyal and yet qu- kind of quiet, bigger man, uh, he is willing to do whatever it takes to get Bethy back. And that includes going to the South End, uh, facing these unusual folks uh, that have a history in uh, the, the whaling uh, from the 1860s. That's when that, er- that area of the town kind of uh, was established. So... Uh, the fact that Jean will, through the story, uh, sacrifices everything, including uh, eating one of the the cohogs to basically uh, join Bethy in that same kind of trance so that he can see what she's seen um, and then battle it for her soul. Because we learn early on that the trance that she is in is not something that you can go to the hospital for. Um, he has to go and try to get an antidote from the South End folks. So I think that that brings an, a nice difference to what we would normally get in a Lovecraft story is this the power of this love and the sacrifice that Jean makes in order to... Yes? No, no, just going off exactly saying, this is the stuff that we covered in Sorrow Road by Tim Wagoner 
in that story. And and I have a note here that, you know, this, like that story, is a blue-collar story. In fact, it's kind of interesting how, you know, both of these stories by James Chambers, there isn't, like, something super, super, super amazing going on on this one. It's not, like, a big catastrophic event or anything. The catalyst of the story is, is seriously, it's fishing. <laughs> you know, these are people, you know, I, they're out in the bay, you know, they're fishing for cohags. I'm, I'm going to get it, I swear. Um, it's a it's it's a blue-collar worker activity, you know. Chambers spends a lot of time in the beginning of the story describing the townsfolk, the folk that come into the to the bar, you know, coming off of a, a shift of, uh, of fishing and doing industrious work and everything here. And for all purposes, you know, these characters, you know, yeah, they, they fought in a war together, which is, you know, a pretty traumatic and catastrophic thing, but... Without this, you know, the rest of their lives are going to be running a bar and fishing and just kind of, you know, going by life, you know, living the things that they got to live. But, you know, something is infringed on this very, you know, uh, familial, uh, everyday man life. And in this case, it was, hey, I just want to, you know, Gene wants to better himself and an opportunity comes up to do some a different type of fishing, and he sees it no different than the fishing that he's normally doing. Uh, granted, it's crazy star-shaped evil cohags, but to him, it's still it's just a job. You know, this isn't finding a an arcane book of spells or necronomicons or finding your way into some ruins out in the desert or you know some wizard that's immortal casting spells. He's just a fisherman. Yeah, and and kind of following on on that that particular thought is the fact that we really don't have a whole lot of academic uh influence in these stories they like you say nick they're they are blue collar um they're the everyday man everyday woman uh people that are going about their lives uh the only academic influence that we have is from fenton and he's actually bringing in the mathematical component he's the outsider that comes in um, to in this story, and, and if I may, he's not even the hero. His, his knowledge in academia, while is successful in other Lovecraft stories, where you know a professor from Arkham can just pick up a copy of Necronomicon and destroy a Yog Sothoth spawn or something, mm-hmm. he's ineffectual in Aztecia Hills. He can't even see the cosmic uh, craziness that's going on that Sinelli can. Now, now, granted, in Investigation 47, other things do happen to Fenton, but that's in a different story. But he, his academia fails here, while the artists and the blue-collar folk have a bit more, well, I don't want to say success, because bad things still happen to them, but they, they, they have that peek into the otherworldliness. Well, and to that point, I would say that both Savatory or Salvatore, mm-hmm. and Spence are natives to this area. And so they are our subject matter experts, and they are our narrative narrators in both of these stories. What I think is interesting, and, and you brought up the fact about the academic being ineffectual, I find it interesting that in these stories, unlike Lovecraft, who relied on the academic world as a way to give legitimacy we're seeing more contemporary stories that don't go that route and I think that's actually an interesting statement about in a more larger picture how academic 
how academia may not be playing the same kind of role in our society today versus what was going on during the time of Lovecraft and his writing in the 20s and 30s. Changing kind of focus here a little bit, there is something, I don't know if it's an auteur element of Chambers, but I'm just going to toss it out there anyway. Between this story, Aztecia Hills, and some of the stories of Engines of Sacrifice, Chambers has a great knack for making characters just vanish and disappear. Um, I think it's kind of funny, but uh, usually at some sort of climactic moment, a character just vanishes. Uh, in Aztecia Hills, um, Sinelli vanishes for a month. In this story, the uh, Big Gene and his, uh, his wife vanish into the water. I mean, it's not implied that they're drowned or anything because they're kind of sucked up by this, you know, black mass. Investigation 47, the detective also disappears for a month. Um, it's just, it seems like in a, a James Chamber store, if you're a character, all Chambers has to do is snap his fingers and you are gone for a while. Oh, and, and I think in one of the other stories of Engines of Sacrifice, they happen upon like a, a hidden room in a house or something, and there's some disappearing acts going on in there. I guess what I'm trying to say is something about Chambers and his writing, he, he's both conjuring up a fictitious story and at the same time he's able to yank people out of his own setting it's a very godlike power that chambers commands over his writing well isn't that part of the role of the writer even more so in this one because he makes people disappear all the time he doesn't kill people or murder people or anything like that he's like i'm just gonna snap my fingers you're gone i'll I'll bring you back eventually I just I think it's just kind of an an auteur element of his Nixport stuff. I don't know. It's just something kind of it's a thread I see in a lot of his stuff, and maybe that harkens back to, uh, as Chambers said, Dreams of the Witch House is a big influence on his work. And again, that story has a lot of emphasis uh, or elements of you know temporal shifting. You know, the character is in his room, the the angles aren't right. He winds himself teleported to other areas. And maybe it's just something that Chambers likes to do, is to play with, uh, you know, phasing characters in and out of existence. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's done well. It's just, it is done well. It's just kind of interesting. <laughs> it pops up quite a bit. In the James Chambers universe, people disappear. And I don't mean that, that they're fed to the fishes. They literally just stop existing for a while and come back later. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, like in the first story, Salvatore disappears for an entire month, and it's uh, explained as though it's the passage of time is different. Um, so, but, but, you know, it gives a sense of hope, though, the disappearing. The very last passage of this story says, you know, day after day, I hope for Big Gene to rumble through the door at Rakers, uh, order a cold Rheingold, and tell me how he stood his guard one last time. It, it's both a sad ending, but at the same time, there's actually, like, optimism and hope there because, again, he, Gene didn't. We don't know he died. We don't know if his wife died. It is entirely possible with the way that the the cosmic universe runs in Chambers' universe that he is, that Big Gene is actually hand-fist-cuffing this, you know, entity, and he might actually prevail and come out. It might be a month or a year or a couple years later. You know, for Gene, it could just be a blink of an eye. Uh, but uh, it's, it's weird how it's the ending of the story is both sad 
with a slight underpinning of hope. Unlike Aztecia Hills, where it's a bit more, I would say, mournful, because he is kind of, you know, like, what happens to me next? I, I've been exposed. In fact, both of these characters have been exposed to something bigger than them. They, they, they realize that they are both insignificant in this grand scheme of things. Sinelli in the first story is more fearful. He was going to destroy his art and uh, Kerouac's notes, and he decides at the last minute not to. He just doesn't know what's going to happen next. On the other hand, Spence is, uh, you know, I, you know, he, he still feels awful about it, but he still has a bit of optimism, I guess. I actually read it a bit differently. I don't get that sense of hope that you do. In I'm an optimistic guy. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm going to have to counter your <laughs> optimism because I I actually feel that Gene's sacrifice, he already knew he was probably going to have to do that. And the the part that in the story that cues me into that is he does try the to recite the spell that's supposed to take care of bringing Bethy back which I never thought would work anyway. I, I always thought that, you know, he, he was... The South folk were basically trying to give him something and just push him away and not have him come back. And so... And the reason why I say that is that Gene already knew what he was going to have to do is because he had one of those cohogs, the star-shaped cohog, in his pocket. That was not in the burlap bag. That was in his pocket. So he already knew that he might have to eat this weird quahog and and i have to underscore how disgusting this is because i have a note on this mm -hmm. the oddest damn quahogs i've ever seen shell sort of star-shaped sprouting stalks yes. pocked with suckers that pucker to my fingers and he eats it raw <laughs> so, so did you not think of uh, the scene in uh, Old Boy when he's at the bar having the octopus? You know what? I, I to me, that's that's better because I know what an octopus is. I've seen an octopus. I've eaten a little bit of a, a, like tentacle on a something before. This is this is like I don't know what a quahog. I'm guessing is oysterish or something, which it's is a clam. Our, it's a clam, mm -hmm. and it's got these eyes. You know what? Eye stalks puckering to your <laughs> fingers, and he just goes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going, but I have to underscore that because. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> I do not have that sense of hope that you do. The reason that I feel uh, a sense of hopelessness in this story, rather than feeling that sense of hope, is based on like a few paragraphs on the concluding page um, and it's Spence trying to describe the scene. He says the black thing submerged only to surface again rising higher and higher blotting out the stars and the lights from shore a night leviathan that thwarfed my world Jean and I had stood together against war, against hatred and we'd walked away solid but this, this made me feel like a worm pushing back against a rolling truck tire its call sang in my mind, and I believed if I'd eaten one of those those odd cohogs, I'd have thrown myself into the sea with Bethy and Jean. Even though he's hoping that he'll see Big Jean come through the door, I think subconsciously, I felt that he knew that, that it was over, that Jean is out there drifting in the water somewhere, 
um, never to return again. And before you speak, I want to make one more note, and that is James Chambers in his notes on this story. He says, quote, as far as the story goes, Jean could still be out there on the water battling all that darkness and the cosmic horror to which it led him. Jean's fight, after all, is the kind that sadly never ends. And I think that underlies a general sense of tragedy through James' stories. Um, I think in the first one, particularly in this one, as well as uh, Marco Polo about uh, the kids uh, with the face mask that jumps from person to person and almost like a it follows type of uh, story idea of you can never get rid of it unless you toss it to somebody else and run as quickly as possible away from that area. Um, but I, I didn't sense that, that hope, hopefulness that you did. You know what this story kind of reminds me of? Green Mile. Big Gene as Michael Clark Duncan and Spence as Tom Hanks. I don't know why I get that kind of feeling that, uh, you know, if those two weren't in a prison together, they would be like Spence and Big Gene together like this. And that's, you know, that story has a little bit of, you know, that... Oh, man, it's been a while since I've uh, watched the movie for that one. That, you know, you're kind of sad for your friend's loss, that bigger things could have uh, come across. Uh, I think only the last point I want to make is the ties, the shadow over Innsmouth that this story has. Uh, this, this, the Lovecraft Shadow over Innsmouth is probably one of the more flexible stories out there. You see the Innsmouth folk pop up in a lot of places. And we saw that with Ian Welke's End Times at Ridgemont High. And that both Ian Welke's story and Chambers' story here, you know, involve displaced and are migrated denizens of Innsmouth, you know, worshipping Dagon. And I think a funny thing to think about is the world ends in Welke's story at the end, and in The Engines of Sacrifice, that's one of the stories in there actually takes place after the apocalypse. So you could almost situate Chambers' made-up Nixport into the same universe as Welke's made-up Ridgemont. I think they're kind of compatible with each other in a weird sort of way. Well, I, I don't even remember the Engines of Sacrifice stories that, that well now. Um, we did talk about them in, what, episode 25? Yeah, that, two years that, ago. That, that, that's, yeah, two years ago. So I don't remember. Um, I'm actually, that's an, an interesting uh, placement in the universe. I wonder if uh, James actually had any thought about that or if Ian did. Um, I just so think it shows the flexibility of both stories. You know, there's, you know, there's so many Lovecraft stories out there that you can't canonize all of them together. But I think this is an instance that I think you could. You could canonize Lovecraft to Welkie to Chambers. Um, I think it could actually be done. Yeah, I think you make a good point about the flexibility of Lovecraft. There really is a lot there to play with. He has a lot of narrative uh, tropes and structural techniques with with regards to plot um yeah there you know he had some issues in his own time but i think contemporary writers have really worked out some of those kinks such as pacing the use of language how it's how the the story is set up and of course you know these are short stories so you don't have a lot of time to convey um you don't have a lot of time to maneuver that plot and you know hook the reader and then get them through the story uh, quickly so it doesn't seem like 
it's been a waste of time. Uh, one last thing that I'd like to mention with regards to this story, and it's what, part of what we brought up in, in the first story, and that is the descriptive lang language that uh, James uses. Again, just similar to what he did in A Song Left Behind, um, here he drops a lot of aquatic references and descriptive type words throughout the, the entire story that really brings the flavor of the locale, the job of Big Gene, um, the engagement with the water and with the South End folks. Um, I'd also like to bring up the pop culture references. Um, he talks about a Louisville slugger bat uh, behind the, the bar. Um, and that's something that we see and is so often equated with small town or, you know, the more homey type bars, you know, that the locals hang out at. So James, you know, is adept at pulling out certain things that really give you a lot of, of subtext that, that fills out the story because he doesn't have a lot of time. So he does a nice job with that. He mentions uh, Jerry Lee Lewis' Great Balls of Fire. We probably all know that tune. And yet, in the story, Spence has to basically try to shut that song out while Spence, or as Gene is telling him the story about going out uh, to the point and raking these uh, cohawks. The other, a couple other references, uh, Touch of Evil, which I think is, is a marvelous accompaniment to Spence and dry, uh, Gene as they're driving through town. I immediately uh, went right to the reference of the opening scene of the film with the car driving through town. It's a long shot, and I could just kind of uh, imagine that with these two characters. And the way that James plugs that, that reference in is that Touch of Evil happens to be playing at the local um, theater. Uh, the other thing, Jonah is a name that refers to, could refer to the biblical Jonah who was swallowed by the whale. And then the last thing is in the closing paragraphs of the story, uh, Spence actually uh, fastens himself to the wheelhouse of Jean's boat. I immediately thought of Jaws, actually, um, and in the closing scenes of that, when we have our main character strapped and, you know, as other people come and they rescue him you know he's not really necessarily forthcoming with his story um, but Spence definitely isn't going to talk about the fact that he saw this black murky thing under the water and and like Fenton which is kind of interesting in the first story Spence isn't able to clearly see what it is under the water and so he does have take rest afterwards um, he doesn't disappear for a month but he is um, very much shaken by the experience, the loss of his friend, the loss of Bethy, who was also a friend, and just trying to mediate that experience and knowing that those South End folk are, are very, very unusual people. I think uh, that concludes our discussion of the second story. Um, now we'll move into what's coming up next. I look deep in your eyes and I see that to the edge of time Where our laws don't apply Where all is beautiful came 
Thursday, August 27th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on our podcast, Scholars from the Edge of Time. Our guest will be New Zealand author Dan Roberts, a fantasy speculative fiction writer. Uh, he co-wrote his first novel, Hounds of the Underworld, book run, book one of the Path of Raw series with Lee Murray, which was published by Raw Dog Screaming Press in 2017, and they followed up with a book two, Teeth of the Wolf. He's also written two volumes of the Children of Bane series, which has been published by Omnium Gatherum. Uh, we are excited to have Dan uh, join us on August 27th. And if you haven't listened already, our July episode of Scholars from the Edge of Time, we interviewed James Chambers. Uh, we discussed his early writing journey before diving into his various projects on the Night Border, Engines of Sacrifice, and Kochak the Night Stalker graphic novel. Uh, a link to this interview will be uh, found in the show notes. And on episode 31 of HP Lovecast, we will be discussing Gao Tanabe's manga adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's seminal story, At the Mountains of Madness. If you want to read the stories prior to our podcast going live on Sunday, September 6th, you can purchase both volumes at Amazon. We're also very excited to announce that we'll be launching a new podcast series called H.P. Lovecast Presents Fragments. Posting on the third Sunday of each month, Fragments is about a 30-minute program in which Michelle and I will discuss one story as an addendum to our regular hour programming. Premiering on Sunday, August 16th, we'll continue our Chambers exploration by discussing his short story, Kochak, the Night Stalker, the Lost Boy, that's found in On the Night Border. Please feel free to read ahead and then check back for our commentary. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Nick and I each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. As always, thank you for listening, and please keep safe and healthy.